whenever a founder is reaching out, I think first and most important is the individual is trying to build a relationship or complete the transaction. Mm. Uh, are you asking for money or you're asking for relationship? Welcome to another exciting episode of Mind Gravity Podcast. I'm your host, Rohan Honda. Guys, I'm really excited about today's show because today we have Artem Gassan, who is the founder and the managing partner of SaaS Growth Ventures. Prior to SaaS Growth, Artem had over four years of early stage investment experience and was the founder of Four Startups, which has had two exits. Formerly, partner and entrepreneur in residence or EIR at Upshift Partners and 500 Startups Investing. He has scaled sales and revenue for over 50 portfolio companies and reviewed over 1,000 investments for Fund4 at 500 Startups and Accelerator. Well, beyond the investment and the startup ecosystem, he's also an active member in the triathlon community and has finished over 10 Ironman events. So. Without further ado, let's welcome and have our conversation with Artem. Welcome to the Mind Gravity Podcast, Artem. Thank you. Thanks for hosting me. It's my pleasure to have you on the show. Um, but before we dive into what you're working on and what are some exciting things you've done within the uh, SaaS marketplace and what you're doing with SaaS Growth Ventures, we'd love to dig a little deeper about your backstory and how you got started and where you are right now. Great. I think I will start with my superpower. That will help you to understand um, what I, where I started, where my career took me. So I've been an entrepreneur all my life. I didn't had a big joy of working for large corporations, although I tried several times. Um, I realized that more and more that I want to make an impact, an impact into other people's lives, and also help either a organizations or individual on to on individual level. So I've started four companies, had two exits. One company was acquired by private equity group, another one by publicly traded company, all been B2B. And in my last company, I realized that my superpower comes in the form of making an impact and growing revenue and sales predictable way for um, early stage startups. And the problem was that a lot of companies or the ones that I've started, they were technology-based companies, of course, um, venture-backed, et cetera. But one fundamental point that I had struggled with is how do you acquire a customer? How do you grow? How do you make an impact? And I had to spend a lot of time understanding the demand, customer needs, their problems, and how to make it all simple and easy where I can, A, grow the customer base as a result of my efforts, plus make an impact, right? So my superpower comes in the form of making predict, growing predictable revenue um, for SaaS companies. Um, after my last company, I transitioned and joined Upshift Capital, Upshift Partners, a firm where I scale revenue for over, you know, dozens of portfolio companies, then transitioned to Pythonic Startup, part of investment team, help accelerate revenue for over 50 portfolio companies. And after my last uh, uh, journey, I started a venture fund, primarily focused helping B2B SaaS companies grow revenue. Wow, that's fascinating. And it seems like a very nonlinear path to where you are right now, trying to a lot of different things. And I think one key element that comes as, as a striking is, you know, in order to advise startups, you have to be in their shoes, right? So what were some of the learnings that you gone, uh, got through during your entrepreneurial uh, journey uh, that you tend to apply while advising startups or your portfolio startups in, the, uh, in your profile? Yeah. I think for the most part, people build products, people build features, and you're passionate about it because you're creating something that you believe the world will benefit from. Yeah. And it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. It's not simple. I know it personally. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of times the issue is the big disconnect between what you've created as a founder and what the customer perceives or what the value there, right? So a lot of times founders end up going to a customer, trying to understand their needs and trying to build the solutions for them. And they do it, but then they run into other problems. Uh, well, how do you 
clone it? How do you replicate this? How do you, can you charge money for it, right? So this is a very different, like you can build, a bit, most founders build business businesses and I call they have a business model, but the challenge is they might not have a revenue model, right? Which is a very different approach to understand not just what the a customer wants or set of customer wants, but how do you translate to this, not being a feature or toolbox, but rather a solution that actually thousands of people will benefit, organizations will benefit. And secondary, how do you innovate, not just in the features, but on the values that you can create to your customer. As a result, you end up, you know, the unicorn or hundred million dollar revenue company. It's a very different path. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree on that. And I think those are some of the insights that are invaluable in the long run. And if you're actually looking to scale a company, that's something you really need to focus on. How do you generate revenue? How do you continue to grow? How do you be more efficient and optimize your uh, day-to-day operations as well? Um, so with all those learnings packaged into Artem, um, you started a fund called SaaS Growth Ventures. Tell us a bit more about what SaaS Growth Ventures is. Uh, what are some of the focus areas? Well, um, our narrative is pretty simple. We fuel revenue and growth for SaaS companies. So let me walk you through. Most founders know how to build products, but cannot build scalable revenue past their initial success. And secondary, most VC funds simply overlook companies that not growing fast enough, right? And founders have an access to capital today but lack ability to build rapid revenue growth for them. So SaaS Growth Ventures is a venture fund with private equity operational approach to scale revenue and sales for those organizations. So we simply invest only in companies we are feel confident that we can directly impact their revenue as a result, obviously, increased evaluation. Got it. And what is the ultimate goal for this fund? Um, is there the number of companies that you want to target? Is there a focus area within the SaaS uh, vertical that you're looking at? What's the uh, end goal? Yeah, so we're not a prey and spray model. Like I'm sure you know, most funds, the way they operate, they have to invest in, let's say, dozens of companies. We're talking about 50, 100. Depends, of course, on the stage, depends on the size of the fund, et cetera. There are many criteria around that. But at the end of the day, um, it's a picking mechanism, right? The, the, the venture partners find uh, rough diamonds and mm-hmm. then they clean them and, they, and then as a result, they hope the diamond will get sold for 10X multiple later on, right? They're, they're pickers. Yeah. Um, that job is fine, right? But you have to find, uh, you know, uh, you have to invest in 50 companies, but only one third potentially will return or even less than that will return capital to your LPs, et cetera. So as a result, you have to fail a lot of times, invest and hope it goes well, but you don't have a support. You don't, you, there's lack of uh, ability to support those portfolio companies besides of just uh, maybe introductions, maybe monthly calls. Um, there's no hands-on approach. Of course, there's some funds provide uh, assistance with maybe hiring, maybe some content marketing, things like that, like educational, I call it. But it, end result is the same, right? You have to invest in 100 companies and one third of your companies will die. One third companies will become lifestyle businesses and maybe one third will get to series A's and B's. Um, that's how typically the investments are made. We're trying to invest on the basis of 80-20 rule where 80% of our portfolio companies succeed. But in order to do that, we don't invest in 100 companies. We select the companies. We can grow the revenue. As a result, the impact is higher. As a result, we're making the impact. The most important thing for the company is the revenue. Because revenue allows to create the driving force, a secondary valuation increase. Thirdly, customers value uh, sticky, the, 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 the revenue increase, they refer other customers, etc. The business actually grows. As a result, you, yours is a founder vision. You can, you can achieve your vision because you have growth, not just from money, but growth from revenue. And that's much more exciting and attractive. Um, and that's primary focus of assisting those portfolio companies. Very interesting. Um, so you brought in an important point about like focus on the revenue, but however, if you look at the broader venture capital landscape, you know, funds tend to form groups around, you know, early stage or which is like pre-seed seed, then you have series A and beyond, yeah. and then you have like growth state. So what's your focus? Because 
not all startups can have revenue from day one, especially if you're like in early stage, right? So what would be your focus? Yeah, our priorities is focused on companies that have, uh, you know, they raise maybe serious seed round, right? We bridge the gap between seed plus to series A, series A to series B. Um, 70% or 74% rather companies will not reach their series A and series B rounds. Mm -hmm. Right. What happens to them? They are either become lifestyle business right. or they run out of cash. Right. They are not cash flow positive at that moment. So a lot of those companies simply have a business model, but they don't have a revenue model. So we come in like where you have some sort of attraction, some sort of early momentum might have some revenue, like say 25, maybe 50,000. Really, the number is less important to us. What's more important is how much value you able to fulfill to your customers and what's the impact you're able to produce so that might be ten thousand that might be even five thousand dollars maybe you have a credible customers that actually love what you do but they're not paying full price that's okay too right right so the stage is it's still seed it's still seed series a something between but it's definitely not an idea stage meaning if you just have an idea to have a team that probably it's way too early for us. Uh, for those purposes, you have, you know, angel investors, friends and family, accelerators, things like that. Uh, Bifungoid Startup is a great example of that right. to help to get to the point where you actually have some sort of potential product market fit, maybe some momentum uh, where you raise some money, have some team. So we come in a little bit later. And in terms of the, um, the verticals and segments, we're agnostic, um, right. although, we try to focus on businesses that create impact, that create the value to the customer, not a toolbox. Toolbox are great, mm -hmm. uh, where you charge $10, $10 a month or something like that. Yeah. It just, it's just harder to grow them unless you have a volume, massive volume across multiple verticals and sectors, which is hard. Right. And not many of those industries have that volume, unfortunately. So, so, so give an example of what that non-toolbox uh, business would look like. Well, I'm gonna, let's give you an example. Yeah, yeah. Think of it, there's two, two, I break the company in two different buckets. Okay. Uh, there's a, you build a solution and you're selling, you develop a features and you're selling um, benefits of those features, right? That is typically a transactional sales meaning you sell something for $10, $20, $50, anything up to about a hundred, maybe $300 a month. Everything after that, like that's a solution. You have, there are the products, the second bucket is the organizations that are offering outcomes and gains, mm -hmm. right? The outcomes and gains would be either I help you make money or I help you to save money. And the outcome you have some sort of a factor of ROI that you're able to demonstrate to your customer. Those solutions, because you demonstrate ROI and the multiple of ROI, let's say 10 X, right? You provide, you help companies make a million dollars. Right. You're charging a thousand dollars. Do the math on this. You're creating massive impact. Right. That is a secondary bucket we like to look at hmm. because the, the speed and the hockey stick that people like to see comes from by from customers that are going to pay you more money, obviously, right. but more than that, that they will expand your revenue mm. is by buying additional licenses, additional seats, maybe, maybe it's per uh, performance base, per leads, per record, whatever, whatever the form of that is. And those organizations have able to make a massive impact and not just to one individual in organization, to multiple individuals or employees. When you buy a toolbox, it maybe works for one person. Right. Sure, they might be buying licenses for $10 for multiple users, um, but organizations that create ROI or cost savings mm. can get to higher revenue multiple, mm. much higher, and LTV is much stronger at right. that point. Right. Not everyone, every business fits that model, Right. Those are the two that um, that we're look, trying to look at. Got it. Then what are, what are some of the ways to get a recurring, uh, recurring revenue stream uh, by providing uh, the same business model underlying it? 
Well, think of this for a second. The revenue stream is it's something you're charging the customer mm -hmm. and simply in software as a service, you're providing a software right? and it's uh, on-premise maybe or in the cloud mm -hmm. for which your customer is paying you mm -hmm. for the most part, either pay you subscription or annualized license, right? Maybe you sign a long-term contract, whatever that is. Right. But in exchange, it's an exchange of values. Right. I deliver you a value and you pay for that value. Now, if that value is created for many users across multiple departments, mm -hmm. then your path to sales is faster, your sales cycle is shorter because you don't have to acquire the new customer every single month. Right. And secondary, if you sold, if you acquire a customer and that customer grows amount of employees mm -hmm. without you doing any sales, you naturally will increase your revenue because they add additional licenses because they added new employees and the new employees benefit from it, right? That's right. an example. Or if you deliver value and as a result, they increase the revenue, mm. which means they wanted to expand to other departments, maybe equipment that they currently apply that software to, they want to make more money. Right. So what you have, you end up having is predictable revenue mm -hmm. month over month, but more than that, your revenue even increasing Right. Potentially every three, maybe six, maybe every single, every year. Right. So as a result of your value that you consistently deliver to your customer. Right. Versus selling one single uh, license for $10, that's fine, but you constantly need new people. Mm. Right. Right. Because some of them end up churning and the cost for acquisition every single year through online marketing efforts are increasing. It just naturally the cost of labor increases. Right. And cost of advertising increases. So you need the only factor to make this work is the speed that people adopting your solution. Right. Without right. the speed, you it's it's very difficult. Your cost for acquisition is just not going to pay off from that point. Does that make sense? Yep. No, absolutely. I, I, I think that's a ton of sense. If you just to like have the linear equation, profit is revenue minus the uh, <laughs> cost that that that's occurring. The, you know, if, if your revenues are not increasing, but your costs are naturally increasing because of the market forces, your profits are going to continue to decrease or decline over a period of time. And that's not a sustainable business. <laughs> right. right. You might have a great business model. Right. But you might not have a revenue model. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and that's a fascinating point you brought. So revenue seems to be the centerpiece of um, a startup or a business that needs to continue to grow and sustain over a long period of time, right? But we see this mentality in the Silicon Valley and a broader tech ecosystem where the focus is more on growth, 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 growth at any expense, not necessarily on the profits or the revenue for, for that matter, right? And it was much more different prior to COVID, uh, but there's been a new tune being adopted, like, you know, the focus should be on revenue and profit. So what was that contrasting difference you're starting to see or you see um, uh, that that'll help enable a lot more profitable or revenue generating okay. in the future. Well, you brought a good point, right? Let, let's break this down mm. in a couple of pieces. Yeah. When you're saying I want to grow at all costs, I, I totally support that. Right. But where is this applicable is the main question. Mm. So for B2C, right, if you're selling to the consumer, mm. you typically have an individual that makes the trend looking for a product and he or she typically is a decision maker unless it's a child or teenager maybe where he or she might not have a credit card on her own and for that purpose they have to ask the parent to give them the money to perform the transaction right so because the decision making process is typically done by one person your sales cycle is very fairly short Right. So therefore you can drive the revenue and more users with the hopes that once they see the value, it's a top to bottom to up kind of like approach right. as a result, later on, they will buy maybe a secondary product or maybe they subscribe to the next feature. Right. right. Yep. But you typically only focusing on acquiring users, driving the users. Mm -hmm. That's all fine. Right. That worked great for the consumer. Great examples of that, if you have a velocity, right. massive frequency, that would be chat applications, 
messaging applications, communication solutions. Right. Right. Those are the drivers like tech, you know, like the TikToks of the world and text messaging and telegrams of the world, like things like that. Like inherent network effect from like but a communication. It's just yeah. because you have massive volume mm -hmm. and you have some sort of a network effect between those individuals that where they can communicate, which drives your volume higher. So they have focus on growth. Yeah. That makes sense. But not every business have volume hmm. and network effect. Right. 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 That it's just not everyone. Sure. But in B2B, it's, it's less than B2C for the most part. So when it comes to B2B, you can, you have a frequency hmm. or you have a dollar amount factor. Right. right? So you either charge, one dollar but you have a million transactions a day and that would be a fintech business right where you, you just people conduct business between each other uh, they perform financial transactions as a result you make you know one percent whatever the whatever the difference is right. or you're so selling software mm -hmm. well, if you're selling a software now we come down to what do you i mean there's not much frequency there because they're not going to be buying thousands of thousands of seats millions of seats or hundreds of million seats. It's just, there's no, there's no velocity of that level. So you only have, what, what factors do you have? You have sales duration, which typically involve multiple people, mm -hmm. right? If multiple people involved in transaction, it delays getting paid. Right. Yeah. Well, okay. So that's kind of like one negative factor that you, you can, you can influence, but you totally don't have a hundred percent control over it. And then you have amount of dollars that you can extract because of that. So if the duration of con completing the transaction, let's say three, six months, or even a year, mm. you only have one choice to raise the price, right? Yeah. Be able to sustain the difference, right? Unless you have a frequency, but again, it will not be at millions of millions of users. You just don't have that. Right. Start creating an SMB, maybe micro SMB. Yeah. But then you have a churn factor. Like again, it's you just operating with different variables. Right. The growth at all costs makes total sense if your revenue model can support that. Hmm. Hmm. Fintech companies, yes. Consumer, yes. Yeah. SaaS enterprise might not be the case for it. It it just not applied for those businesses. Got it. You have to really when people provide the feedback or ideas, you have to double check for who is it who is it for what kind of business is this is applicable for the most part right this might not work for you even though you hear this investor saying so a couple of companies that come to mind is like the saps or the oracles of the world right where you don't have like large volumes per se but you have to have that recurring partnership or that high fees or the cost of transaction needs to be higher in order to make sense. And they have obviously grown much bigger for, for that very reason, because of the B2B2C interactions that they have um, uh, that allows them to continue to grow their revenue and still have sort of a uh, duopoly or monopoly <laughs> over the market. Right. Right. Um, so when you think about when, when a startup approaches you uh, for funding or advice, what are some of the things that you're looking for and how do you assess that startup, right? Um, and how do you decide that uh, this startup is worth funding or not? Um, what are some of the clues that you have from the first meeting itself? That's a great question. Uh, whenever founders reaching out, I think first and most important, is the individual is trying to build a relationship or complete the transaction. Mm. Uh, are you asking for money or you're asking for relationship? Mm. Right. Think for that. Um, and of course there are some investors just wants to do a transaction. That's fine. But it comes down to like four biggest, I would say biggest pillars, quality team, time tested offer, sustainable competitive differentiator and traction and economics of scale. Got it. Could you break those three down further? Let's take a look at um, people invest in people, hmm. right? So individual, your personality. Um, I break it down in a couple components. Uh, what is your superpower? Hmm. You as an individual, not what your product does, not who your customer but you as an individual, what can you bring to the table that other people don't have? 
And it's typically a mixture of multiple people, right? Uh, product person, um, and then maybe technical person. They have, uh, it's about team, remember? It's not an individual a lot of times. Ideally, you know, co-founder, right. two people, maybe three people, ideally, because then you're just progressing and making impact and you're growing to grow faster. Because mm -hmm. people are more vested, right? When you hire a team member, then that individual there for maybe a short period of time or maybe something's going to happen. That individual is not going to be vested for a lot of times, for like 10 years of duration of your startup. Maybe two, maybe three, maybe four, but not 10 for the most part. Right. And again, there's some, I'm generalizing a lot of things, of course, so don't pick my words apart. Um, the second one is strong work ethics. Ability to demonstrate and execute whenever they say something, they're able to prove and do it. Mm. Um, a lot of founders, um, they don't take criticisms well, unfortunately. Mm. So how well do you acknowledge and accept the criticism and feedback? Like, are you listening? Are you trying to change it? Or you're trying to just I know what I'm doing and just don't want to engage with that type of conversation. So coachability is a very important factor. So superpower, coachability, strong work ethics, uh, open for feedback. Those are the core components. And how well do you understand your customer problem and to which extent? How well, not like, well, my market is large. Right. There's so many, like all those buzzwords, like how well do you understand? Who did you talk? What did they tell you? Right. How well do you know this customer? I mean, when I mean like when you sell, let's say an enterprise product that's worth even $10,000, your relationship with that customer takes a completely different level. Right. You know more about that individual problem, how it's affecting the organization. You actually know what is the name of their dogs and cats. Right. That's the relationship because it's not about $10,000. It's about, making an impact organization and that customer will help to expand your value to other departments of organization. So you really need to know everything. Right. How well do you know on the personal level? Yeah, no, I, I think that having that personal touch is very key uh, in an environment that's so tech driven, right? Right. A lot of times founder over exaggerate and it comes across, it's easy to spot mm -hmm. uh, that type of behavior, right? So being honest, transparent, open, uh, just demonstrate what your superpower is and how you help other people. One person, I'm not asking for a hundred people. I'm not asking for hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. I'm asking for one individual. Right, right. To the personal level, what have you, how have you helped that individual or organization? It's a key here. Right. And having an aha moment saying, hey, well, that individual used my product and I help her or him with achieving X results. And some things didn't work, but some work. As a result, there was a hot moment. The customer shared with me something I never realized. Mm -hmm. That is what sparks my interest, right? So it's very, it's a relationship you can clearly see. It's not just transaction, how many customers you have, what's your revenue, how fast you're going. That's all fine. You might not have a revenue model yet, and that's okay. The point to understand is how much value you've created in the, organization how much impact what was the ROI if you've done it right. and how how happy are they what testimonial they give you what did they share how much trust do you have from that person right I, I think that's a very interesting point given you know how many debacles we have had in the past decade uh, you know some of the famed startups with their internal disengagement or not being engaging with customers whether it be uber uh, or some of the other companies, right? But then you know, on the other hand, you also have Airbnb, which is kind of their culture is setting the tone for their bottom line as well. So uh, in a way, from what I understand, the way you set up your culture, the way you interact with your customers is eventually responsible for your success and your bottom line and how you continue to grow as a company. Would that be fair? Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, no, I think that that's very well said. So, but that brings us to the second part of that uh, transaction value, if you will, between the investor and founder, right? So one way is where the founder goes in and the investor um, kind of makes a decision about whether to move forward or not. So assuming now that um, we have passed that event, 
everything is good. The investor invested in the founder. What What's happening behind the scene? What's the value add that a founder or a startup should be expecting from an investor uh, to continue fostering that relationship? Because a lot of time it comes across as like, okay, you go to an investor because you need capital, right? But there's more behind the scenes, obviously, uh, than just the capital needs. So what's the value uh, add on the other side? Um, I think I mentioned about my superpower. That is what the impact. We are here to help founders to succeed, right? And work with the founders shoulder by shoulder to scale the revenue. Um, how? Well, there's many pieces behind that. Uh, first one is understanding, you know, where you are today and having a financial sales revenue model that demonstrate you, how can you get to a million dollars? Most important, or $2 million, whatever your target is for that particular year. And breaking down economics of that, meaning here's how much it costs, here's the cost of your marketing qualifying leads, here's your uh, opportunity cost, here's a conversion rate across each of your stage of the funnel, and I actually understand where is the biggest impact or friction are you currently facing in an organization, okay? Basically, that becomes your hypothesis or risks. Those are the ones that needs to be witted out or understood first before actually scaling this. So that's kind of like a step one. Step two is having the process system and methodology that allows an organization to efficiently acquire the customer and test this with a founder or co-founder so they can do it before they can clone it and actually replicate this and designate to other people to repeat the same steps. Okay. And number four, they have to have a process and technology that allows them to efficiently acquire additional customers. So all those things are, I call this building engine of growth. Gotcha. Without the engine of growth, you're acquiring customer typically based on your personal relationship, based on referrals, maybe inbound leads. That's all fine. But that's, that's not going to get you to series A as fast as you want it to be. As a result, you might end up running out of money or valuation decrease or other factors. So for us, it's providing those three things that allows to make an impact on the, on the revenue. It's controlling the, having a control over sales process, sales uh, um, blocks that exist for organization and drive towards that ultimate goal because you can impact inputs, which is your MQL rate, opportunity rate, close the rate, win rate, sales duration. Those are the, your inputs that drives your revenue outputs. Having control of this early on helps you know what issues needs to be addressed, how to address, and that's, that's the value that we provide our personally work and assist the founder in that area. Got it, yep. No, I, I think that makes a ton of sense. That's making sure the KPIs are being met uh, you know, making the right introduction at the right time, uh, whether it be to businesses or partners that will continue to help your portfolio grow. That does become the key aspect uh, um, of, of this relationship. So that kind of, you know, mends the end, like for a founder should be looking for an investor and what an investor looks for a founder. So it doesn't become a one way street. Um, it's very well, um, you know, so that brings me to uh, a question around, some of the new business models that you are seeing in light of pandemic within the SaaS vertical and what are some of these uh, different segments that founders are going after and that you think are exciting um, you know during COVID and post COVID? So overall SaaS revenue is still staying strong. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a little bit slowly growing and SaaS companies have become more efficient at that. So if you look at all the public traded companies, they primarily focus on optimizing the operational expenses, making sure that they're very lean, right, uh, to be able to sustain the pandemic uh, duration. At the same time, you're seeing that there's a couple of shifts, that, changes that happen in industry, right? So we are decreasing in our travel, right? So now we have more, we're accepting a distributed workforce, uh, which is obviously that drives the cost of travel down for especially like public companies. Secondary uh, cost to operate decreases because they don't have to rely on infrastructure that they used to have before, which is the office space, you know, mills, many, many, many things and perks that being provided to the employees. So that changes as well. So that helps to decrease this. 
At the same time, uh, now software is eating more the world because we uh, communication is changing the way we've been conducting the business before, right? So uh, some people used to do field sales or conferences and events that got shifted towards online communications and uh, Zoom, Ring Central, or GoToMeeting are good examples of those solutions, and they will be expanded. Right. Um, I suspect those companies will have uh, more growth just because more organizations will adopt their solutions. Uh, secondary, you will see the same same effect in other departments, right? So the Zooms I use, let's say, for average meetings, right? I don't know, all kind of meetings today, right? So you will start seeing um, Zoom equivalents for probably like developers, like code reviews, code communications, uh, um, check-ins, and cetera, like able to multiple developers to collaborate together, right? Same thing will be for the sales reps, right? There will be divisions of Zooms, just market is changing. So there'll be more solutions around communication. Now, this, the, the, another factor is of communication is 5G, right? As this gets more stabilized, uh, people working remote, we're probably seeing a lot of um, our internet might not be stable, right? Our Comcast might not be... Uh, uh, it goes ups and downs because so many people now are using it, whatever your internet provider is. So there will be changes there, right? And then the innovation will happen with 5G. So people will be able to leverage uh, different broadband connectivity. You will see more IoT devices and connected devices all around connections, right? Because we can now communicate better than ever before, right? And lastly, regulatory barriers for online solutions got changed, especially in uh, healthcare, um, things related to the Medicaid or health plans, where now you can do telemedicine, right? And accommodate your temporary visits or getting your prescription filled in, right? So a lot of things where healthcare will change. Um, and the way we educate, right? Uh, teachers, school districts, um, or any access to basically learning right. right that's going to innovate as well uh, as supposed to people go to the colleges now sit in the rooms now that's going to change just everything changing in that in that fashion and i think that one interesting big factor is we're not realizing the impact of it yet i think we've seen the couple uh um, denial service attacks happening with uh, t-mobile recently and other organizations is the security and risks threats security will increase right because so many people are going to be working remotely, mm -hmm. so there is more threats that will happen. People try to steal the information, access to corporation data. Right. Uh, so we've been controlling all that with the firewalls and centralized locations. Now employees are remotely distributed. The right. risk is actually increases. Right. So security products will, will, will make a big impact. Plus, um, I, I would assume this is not the first and the last pandemic. We might see that another wave or some other form or another issues like that will happen in the next, maybe the next 10 years, 20, who knows? Yeah. But today we have to be more prepared for that, right? So there will be like emergency situation, pandemic precaution, I don't know, procedures, which are now being uh, in place in different organizations. So they want to make sure that they don't have a downtime, right? Or everything stays operational, regardless of the economical conditions or pandemic condition. We, they, they want to make sure that their revenue stays the same, employees being taken care of. Uh, those are kind of like four big um, areas of innovation that's going to happen. Yep. No, I think you touched on some really good points. Although I do fear personally taking the human touch away due to a lot of these virtual interactions, right? Um, a lot of people would say like, yeah, this pandemic is, uh, it, it's a pause button. What I think it's an actually an accelerant. It's correct. Absolutely. Right. Uh, absolutely agree with that point. Yeah. And, and the more, and, and you're absolutely right. Like, you know, I don't think this is the end all kind of a virus. There will be multiple different mutations of these that we may see in the future and what that will do Absolutely. either our human behavior or the virtual networks we end up setting. In that world, having the privacy, having making sure that our data is secure, making sure we are not being robbed off our data all over again uh, you know, by rogue nations or through companies, it becomes very critical. Yeah, basically whenever you see change, 
like this. Mm -hmm. And let's say today communications are, like we, we all using Zooms or Ring Central, as I mentioned, or go to meeting solutions, right? Mm -hmm. That that it's by itself becomes its own market. Yeah. Right. And when you market is shifting towards that direction, then you start slicing the market. Mm -hmm. Right. You got a communication solutions for medical, right. communication solutions for uh, I don't know, uh, consumer products, educational Zoom. Like there's so micro segments of the same thing that can be created. Right. You right. start seeing innovation we want. So th at the end of the day, we are creating in its own market we're just expanding this right. and slicing this more um because uh, the big companies today cannot withhold that type of a rate they can't grow as fast as the as the demand is increasing so no, we'll I, see some changes yeah. there especially like 5g especially communication especially security though and education and healthcare right right yep no i think these are the big uh, these processes have been kind of in the dire need for change for a very long time. <laughs> and now finally, I think their moment has sort of come from at least what it looks like. And think for a second, there's, whenever there is a problem, right, exists where now you probably have seen that San Francisco alone uh, decline of rent dropped by six, was up to 6% today, right? 9%, yeah. 9%, right? So I missed the news, I guess. Um, <laughs> What was interesting is that the question you got to ask yourself, what happens to all those properties, mm. like, uh, like big malls? Yeah. That's a lucrative opportunities that can be converted into, I don't know, Amazon might have the warehouses there mm -hmm. or anything else, right? So you got to think outside of the box. If there is a problem, mm. if something happening in the market and there is an asset on the market, that nobody wants anymore. What can you do with this? Because now assets worth less than it used to. So how can you make money from that? Right. What can you do with this that other people can benefit? Or what kind of innovations you can do there? Because those assets, those buildings, they will still be there, right? I'm sure people will go to offices maybe, maybe, but not as often. Yeah. Maybe it's just gonna be a different procedure. But the question is how can you leverage this right. for a different purpose? No, absolutely. No, it's uh, talking to a lot of folks in the Valley, all these state of the art buildings that have been created by Apple or by Google campuses and everything. It's, it's kind of at a you know standstill. Like what do you do with some of those spaces? How can you utilize if the space is not being occupied by your employees, for instance, right? Um, so yeah, no, fascinating. That also brings me to a question. So from an investor advisor side of things, um, how's, your role going to change because like previously we've been so dependent upon these accelerators incubators being right. information based or investors kind of uh, uh you know uh, being centered around silicon valley how do you think that getting disrupted or, or, or the role of investors and these uh, new business models within the uh, investment capital space kind of disrupting that's a good one um well we have so many accelerators today right and they're all over the world they are distributed nowadays um, are they effective is another question because this is kind of a new change um, I have a certain opinion about that um, remote education I think it's fine uh, the problem is a lot of times people get access so founders get access to so much information nowadays that it's harder and harder for them to differentiate which information is valuable applicable to them rather um, how can they apply? They get, they're learning a lot of things, but a lot of times they're not practicing those things, right? So now you're getting more noise than ever. So it's good and bad, I would say. Uh, for the ones that live in disconnected parts of the world, have an access to this better than ever, and that's great. Um, but applying this, it might be a different right. challenge, right? So secondary for investors when they invest they typically invested in let's say silicon valley only now they have to look for other opportunities but the challenge is how do you establish the trust with the founder we you, you never met before right. you're only having online conversation yeah. and it's you don't know that individual i'm sure you can rely on other investors so that's going to change to the way we trust each other right. um and i think people are going to be looking at like to protect themselves, they'll be looking like, show me the traction, show me the revenue, right? Back to the uh, basic yeah. zone. Yeah. Uh, and some will take the take the bets on 
funding and supporting founders based on the online conversation that can work too yeah. um it's to be determined i think i i don't know <laughs> it's hard to say but definitely silicon valley is silicon valley offers multiple components that i don't think is going to be displaced got it um innovations sure mm-hmm. uh, and then talent now is distributed right it's kind of like losing those leverage points but one thing silicon valley always probably will be that early adopters People yeah. are very passionate. Like in terms of customers, like in Silicon Silicon Valley, you can get the customers faster than let's assume you're targeting, let's say, uh, Ohio. I don't know some disconnected part of a small town, small city. It's just harder, right? right. The company is not as innovative. They're taking slower in terms of making decisions. The trust is not established. So the question is really not about how investors will invest or how they find those founders. I think that's all solvable. Hmm. The question is how those companies will grow now. Yes, they will have access to capital more than ever before. And knowledge and information will be available to them more than ever before. The question of, will they actually do it? And secondary biggest one, will the customer be able to buy products and services without having that personal touch is the main question here. Mm -hmm. So the growth organizations depends on that factor as opposed to access to capital or access to information. Just again, very different perspective, but. Fair, yeah. You're essentially trusting someone you've never met, never seen, and I can pretend to be anyone or an online conversation. So what are some of those new metrics you gotta look at to make sure, yeah, this is a safe bet or something that's gonna grow? I think people are gonna be looking more like, show me the traction, who else invested in you? Who else trusted you? It's all back to the trust, right? Right. And trust takes time to establish. Uh, It's easy to lose it, but mm-hmm. very hard to earn it. Fair. Yeah. It comes back to the same principles, you know, team, uh, superpower, uh, open for the feedback, like back to those basics. And I think uh, is the founder is a risk taker? Mm-hmm. Is the founder willing to listen for the feedback and a stress tolerant? Right. Those are the things I'm still missing. Yeah. Yes, you can find founders. Yes, you can find capital. And yes, people preferentially invest in you. But it all comes down to like founder execution. You can't hide it behind the slides or Zoom. You have to demonstrate this. Yeah, no, I think you tied it up pretty well, like in a complete circle. Um, yeah, it, it comes down to exactly your superpowers. Um, so what's the number one advice you would give to the founders uh, around this time moving forward? Um, this is a new time mm-hmm. to start the companies, absolutely. Yeah. And focusing on uh, be stress tolerant, mm-hmm. like, don't afraid to fail. It's totally fine. You learn something, therefore it makes you stronger. Uh, fulfill the customer value mm-hmm. and make sure you focus on a customer, not multiple customers, one customer, one at a time is more important. Demonstrate that aha moment to an investor as your traction. Uh, build the trust early on with them by sharing, communicating, and providing testimonials or anything you have about that customer, what you have fulfilled. That's two. And number three, focus on revenue more than just fundraising. Today's fundraising is, is a bit, I would say some funds invest and some funds just don't invest. The reason, I'll just elaborate a couple of points here, some funds, they don't perform. And the reason they don't perform because they invested last year or two years ago in companies at much higher valuation and some of those businesses underwater mm. right because of the vertical they operated or the sector they operate which means it affects the performance of the fund right so those investors typically end up protecting lp money and they only want it to do follow-up investments potentially or invest in much more secure deals that bypass maybe series a i don't know something that has attraction, many other VCs invested. So they're trying to leverage that. For the new funds that have the capital, they're much more, they can actually pick the good companies today, right? Because they, they, the valuation is slightly different. It's a little bit lower than it was before. Uh, founders much more focused on revenue and traction. And now the shift is going towards like this bootstrap companies, right? Like people who survived this pandemic, who are able to make it through um, and backing those founders because they're capital efficient 
they're not just raising the money, they're focusing on the customers, they're focusing on decreasing their operational expenses and trying to keep this lean as much as possible because nobody knows how long this is gonna take. Right. And nobody knows if they're gonna get another tranche of capital and how soon. So priorities shifted right. towards this bootstrap, revenue focus, a customer centric, focus on building the business, not fundraising. This, the measurement of success is not the amount of dollars you raised, it's how much value you've created based on the amount of dollars you raised. Very well. Artem, it was a great piece of advice for our conversation. I really enjoyed this. And there's, I think, a ton of great information to be had for future founders and investors who are looking to invest, not just in the SaaS uh, marketplace, but you know, investments in general. Um, before we end our segment, I would love to hear where people listening to this podcast can contact you. Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. If you can highlight the company, I think that LinkedIn would be one of the companies if I have to highlight. I think what they've made in the last couple of years, major changes and improvements, how we all communicate, right? And people have profiles, but LinkedIn made a big improvement for uh, learning and connecting us, not just on the business level, but learning level. Mm -hmm. Also, they've made so many different additional offerings to help to, um, either for an individual to find the job, connect with other people, uh, learn through the managed skill set. So that, that ecosystem is really powerful. And I'm very active on LinkedIn. You can connect with me, I respond. I, I accept almost every person because I build a relationship more and, um, and what's gonna happen in the future. Secondary, uh, I also publish um, SaaS talk show, SaaS digest. It's kind of like the uh, weekly episodes helping the founders to grow their revenue and sales. And this is called uh, Secrets of Rapid Growth and Revenue. So highly encouraged to take a look at some of those video podcasts. They're very short, five, 10 minutes, no more than that. And I, um, I highlight some of the founders through those uh, news digest help to promote, I wouldn't say promote, but just highlight what they've done great, what they've shared, what kind of information. So I'm truly helping founders through the LinkedIn network. And that's where I can, you can always connect me with uh, via email, but LinkedIn probably gonna be the most effective way because I respond to probably like 50 people a day, at least. Um, so you can find me by first name, last name, or send an email. Um, that would be Artem at sasgrowthventures.com. Brilliant, Artem. I'll have all that information available in my footnotes uh, for the podcast. Once again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. Great. Thank you. Guys, it could not have been more exciting than this episode. There's so much information to be unpacked for startups, for investors, and how to deal with the current pandemic situation for both SaaS startups as well as any other startup who's listening uh, to this episode. I had a ton of fun. I'm sure you did as well. This is where it all ends for us today, but I'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, namaste.